The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by SeatGeek, the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more. For $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, use promo code RINGERMLB. Download the SeatGeek app or go straight to SeatGeek.com. We're also brought to you by FrameBridge. If you've listened to any Ringer podcast before, you may have heard us talk about FrameBridge. You probably know that they make it super easy and affordable to custom frame your favorite things from prints and posters to the photos on your phone. But did you know that a custom frame photo from FrameBridge makes the perfect Mother's Day gift? It's ridiculously easy. Order in a few minutes and FrameBridge will send a one-of-a-kind frame picture that your mom will love. That perfect gift for mom is already on your phone. Here's how it works. Just go to FrameBridge.com, pick a great photo, the expert team at FrameBridge will frame it and send it straight back to you, or they can deliver it straight to your mom in time for Mother's Day. Preview your item online in any frame style, choose your favorite, or get free recommendations from their talented designers. The amazing team at FrameBridge will expertly frame your item in days, not weeks or months, and deliver your finished gift ready to hang. The prices start at $39 for a completely custom gift, and all shipping is free. Plus, our listeners will get 15% off their first order at FrameBridge.com when they use the code RINGER. FrameBridge has thousands of five-star reviews and even offers a happiness guarantee. If for any reason you aren't 100% satisfied with your order, they'll make it right. Order a custom gift for any mom in your life right from your phone. Go to FrameBridge.com and use promo code RINGER and you'll save an additional 15% off your first order. Just go to FrameBridge.com promo code RINGER. FrameBridge.com promo code RINGER. Romans, countrymen, and lovers, hear me for my pod, and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. As always, we are part of The Ringer Podcast Network, home to The Ringer NBA Show, where the wheels of content are a chug, chug, chugging along throughout the entire NBA playoffs. Now, if, like me, you're too pissed at the Sixers to care about basketball right now, we've got plenty of baseball content up on the site. I wrote about Gary Sanchez. Ben Lindbergh wrote about losing track of uh, the the count. Uh, Zach Cram wrote about the Astros rotation. And at the end of last week, we had numerous remembrances of uh, bittersweet athletes on their way out. Sean Fennessy, the boss man on Matt Harvey, Claire McNear on Ichiro, and I wrote a little something about Albert Pujols and his March to 3,000 hits. So today on this podcast, we're going to be talking to Paolo Ugetti, Paolo Escoblog, about the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry, his own unique connection to that, and uh, we're going to look forward uh, to their series this week. Ben Lindbergh is going to come on to talk about his article about Clayton Kershaw, who's since gone on the disabled list and for the first time in years might not be the best pitcher in baseball. But first, as always, is Zach Cram to talk about the baby Atlanta Braves. Hello. I hope to hit as well from the leadoff spot as Ozzy Albies. All right, that's a good segue. Maybe you should host this podcast. Um, let's start with with Ozzy Albies. We're going to talk about the the Braves and their exciting young core and their run to first place and and so on and so forth. But uh, you know, Ozzy Albies seems like a, a good place to start. Yeah, he's been one of the most fun players to start this MLB season. He, first of all, is really young. This is something you wrote about in your piece about the Braves last week. They currently have the three youngest player in the majors between him and Mike Soroka in the rotation and Ronald Acuna, who recently joined Albies in the lineup. But Albies is 
Not a very large player. He's listed at five foot eight, 165 pounds. The only two players in the majors who are smaller than that are Jose Altuve and Ronald Torres. But in terms of skill and power at the plate, Albies is much more on the Altuve end of that spectrum than Torres. He currently leads the National League in doubles, in runs, in total bases, in extra base hits, which is not something you'd expect from a guy who looks like Albies. But even beyond just how good he's been at the plate, he's just been a delight to watch. He is part of the Eduardo Nunez club of guys who, whenever they run around the bases, their helmet flies backwards off their head. His running is just really fun as he rounds first to go to second for a double. He has these pretty short but really built legs, and he looks kind of like Lionel Messi motoring through a midfield. Just those legs move so quickly, and the Braves haven't had a lot to be excited about for the last couple of seasons, but between Acuna, who I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment, and Albies, who started in the middle of last season, they really have some of the most dazzling, fun young players in the majors right now. Yeah, that's the. I did a, a radio hit in Georgia yesterday, and they asked, um, you know, they asked about Acuna and Albies, and I said, you know, Acuna is a better prospect, but Albies is more fun to watch. And I, it's a lot of that. Like, I think there is just something fun about watching a really short guy play baseball. And he is in that, you know, you mentioned his, his legs. Like, he's got that Jose Altuve body type. But unlike, there's something, Altuve isn't like this anymore. But when he was younger, he was just very extra about everything. Like, you know, there's a, the famous clip of him jumping uh, to reach a pitch to swing at over his head. And like, you know, you look at Albies and he's got the huge leg kick. Like, how do you... And the power... I I wonder if... It, like, that's got to be part of the power adjustment because as recently as uh, before the 2017 season, uh, Baseball Prospectus called him a slash and dash hitter. And somebody who is going to get by mostly on speed. And he's one of a bunch of smaller, mostly infield-based prospects who have... It's almost like they've watched Jose Altuve growing up and are now like, oh, I can do something more than just pound the ball into the ground and run. And they've traded a little bit of hit tool for a lot of power. Yeah, in his minor league career, he slugged 444. And right now, of course, this is going to regress somewhat, but he's at 597 this season. And I mean, first off, that's a huge improvement. And it reminds me a bit not of Altuve, but actually of Francisco Lindor, who also has raised his slugging percentage by 100 or more points since he was in the minor leagues. And they kind of remind me of each other in that they're guys who maybe 20, 30 years ago would have been told, you want to swing with a line drive. And that's not to say that Albies is entirely a credit to the launch angle revolution, but I think, like you said, selling a little bit of that contact for what might be 30 home run power like Lindor has and like Albies looks like he has is a worthy trade-off now. Yeah, and that's... Even, you know, you talk about his his 597 slug is going to regress, but he had uh, 20 extra base hits and 244 plate appearances as as a 20-year-old rookie last year. So, like, there's... There's power in there, even if it's not, you know, leading the National League in extra base hits power. Um... Uh, one thing I do worry about, you know, you think about big leg kicks, small middle infielder. Rugnet Odor's had a lot of contact issues. I wonder if there's, you know, if Albie's hit tool is just that much better than Odor's or if there's, 
you know, you look at the how long it takes that swing to come together. I wonder if there's an adjustment coming for him. Well, I think certainly it's going to adjust somewhat. Right now, his slugging percentage is higher than Bryce Harper's. And I think nobody, including maybe Braves manager and executives themselves, would think that's going to last. But I also don't necessarily see him going the way of a door. Even if you look at their swing strike rates, Albies isn't crazy. It's 10%, which should lead to maybe a 20% carry. That's not where Odor is. And I I just think Albies also has so many other things going for him. He's one of the few players mm-hmm. in the majors right now who can legitimately crush a pitch over the fence and then gain extra bases with his speed by stretching singles into doubles and doubles into triples. He might be the fastest second baseman in the majors right now. So there are so many skills there. I don't think he is even following the Altuve path either because Altuve was never really a prospect coming up and he struggled his first few years in the majors. Albies heading into last season was one of the dozen best prospects. I think Baseball America and MLB.com both ranked him number 11. So it isn't necessarily a surprise that he's this good. It's just kind of a surprise of how he's been this good and how he's been this good so quickly. Yeah, I think that's that's the thing, not just for him, but for Acuna. Although uh, Acuna, given how well he had killed um, older competition throughout the minors, how well he hit in spring training, there was you know an expectation that he would be good right away. Is what you've seen out of him through his first 11 big league games you know, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll make uh you know, we'll draw conclusions off that, but like, you know, is this what, you know, what you thought was coming? I've also really been enjoying the aesthetics of Acuna's game. Uh, not the running necessarily like with Albies, but he has a gorgeous swing. And I think I've, there's one thing about it that really stands out to me, but I'll let you finish first. Well, so I just think whenever anyone thinks of their favorite swings, generally we have a bias toward left-handed hitters, whether it's someone mm-hmm. like Griffey or Harper or someone like that. Acuna is a right-handed hitter, and I was watching highlights in preparation for this and just re-watching his first home run. Uh, that swing just goes straight through the zone, and he ends it with like a little bit of a flourish, and it's just a perfect swing path. And I'm excited to be able to watch more of that over the next decade or more. Yeah, what the thing that stands out to me, and like there is something about the the lefty versus righty, you know, beautiful swing thing. I think Bill James wrote about it like 20 years ago that like great right-handed swings, <laughs> at least you know, um, great right-handed swings. You think about uh, Pujols or Mike Trout, like they tend to be efficient or functional, and great lefty swings, you know. Griffey and, and Harper to great examples of this, they tend to be beautiful. And I'm not sure why that is. Maybe there's like a righties are supposed to stay closed more so they can um, get running down the first baseline. I don't know what the, the reason is. But anyway, the thing about Acuna swing is how loose his arms are. Like I remember I was years ago, I was watching golf for reasons passing understanding, but uh, they talked about Rory McElroy's swing and, uh, in I think they they said like arm freedom was the the term they used like his his uh his swing like his arms are like a whip rather than just the whole body is torso and arms all rotating at once like a like a swinging gate and Acuna's got those loose arms and the guys who have it like where it really stands out are guys like it's uh Harper and Otani 
are the two guys with left-handed swings that with um, with the loose arms like that, that that really stand out in my mind. So that's really it's exciting to see just like you know that kind of elegance from a twenty-year-old player. Elegant is a good word for it, and it kind of belies the the damage he does to the baseballs. His hard hit rate right now is over over fifty percent which is right next to guys like Giancarlo Stanton near the top of the Major League leaderboard. And I think that swing does have perhaps a bit of a hole of it. He, If he had one fault in the minor leagues, he could sometimes run higher strikeout rates. But given the latent power he has, given all of his advantages in the field and running, he's really a five-tool player. And that's exciting. He's only 20 years old. And... You wrote about this when you wrote about the Braves, but Jay Jaffe, who's sort of, uh, he works at Fangraphs and he does a lot of writing about the Hall of Fame, found that... He's the god of the Hall of Fame. Yes. He he found that players, period, who play at age 20 have about a 9% chance of making the Hall of Fame. And players who bat at least 100 times at age 20, which Albies did last year, and Acuna is surely going to do this year, have a 19% chance of making the Hall of Fame. So knowing just what we know now about how good they must have been to make the majors at such a young age, Albies and Acuna are about 1 in 5 to make the Hall of Fame already, and that's to say nothing of how good they've been and how good they're probably going to continue being over the rest of this season and beyond. Yeah, it's... The the ceiling for Acuna in particular is just so high that it's almost it's almost difficult to to really grapple with it because you look at what he does well at you know how well he's hit in a, in a small sample how well he's hit throughout every step of the minors how young he is how fast he is how strong he is how pretty the swing is like I don't know what the comp is for that like I don't know where to set your expectations because you know you look at all the tools and he's I don't know, like I'd have to look at his um, at his plate discipline after two or three hundred big league at bats. But like that might be the only thing like that might be the only thing where I look at him and say this is substantially this could this uh, this tool um, might not develop into something comparable to what you know, this is going to sound sacrilegious, but what trout has like it makes watching Acuna makes me understand why people drop trout comps on Byron Buxton you know yeah and I just don't know where else you go right there's really not much else you can do from there and there's such a gulf and I think narratively it's really interesting because Atlanta for a while was kind of the counterweight to the Astros and Cubs because the Braves centered the rebuild around pitching and the Astros and Cubs centered theirs around hitting uh just by way of illustration between 2012 and 2015, the Cubs drafted four times in the top 10 and picked four hitters. The Braves, as you wrote last week, veered in the opposite direction. Five of their last six first-round picks have been pitchers, most of them high school arms who naturally would take a longer time to develop. But amid that ostensible organizational push for young pitching talent, the Braves' best young players right now are two hitters who are already OPSing 900 as the youngest position players in the majors. And that's not to say that their organizational approach has shifted because their long-term fortunes still rest on how many of their like 14 great right. pitching prospects develop, but it's not so easy to distinguish between hitting focus and pitching focus organizations because what does it say about the former when the latter is out here 
developing the very best prospects on the position player side. Yeah, I don't know what the... I mean, there's a difference between player acquisition and player development. I think um, hitting huge on these two guys doesn't necessarily... You know, they might have just had a better hit rate because they did invest super heavily on pitching in the in the draft. And you know, you brought up the Cubs, who you know, four of those top those four straight top ten picks on hitters. But not only that, three of those guys were extremely polished college hitters in in Half Schwarber and Bryant. And focusing on um, on high school pitchers as much as the Braves have in the draft, like it makes me legitimately sweaty. Like I, it's. Watching them go to when they drafted Ian Anderson and then uh, shuffled some of that bonus money um, from his underslot deal to Joey Wentz in the sandwich round, like I was, I don't like this. This is not, you know, you could just draft AJ Puck and this would be a lot simpler than trying to shoot the moon and get, you know, not just Anderson and Wentz, but Kobe Allard had. Um, had red flags in terms of his size and his health. You know, Soroka coming out of Canada. You know, Anderson's a cold weather guy. A lot of not just high school pitchers, but high school pitchers who had a long way to go. And so far, so good. You know, and then their other great uh, pitching prospect coming up right now is Kyle Wright, who came out of Vanderbilt, which is as close to the majors as you can get in um, an amateur ball. But you know, there's. If there's one thing to be concerned about, it's that the pitching is not there yet. And I, you know, they're not going to hit on any of these pitchers the way they hit on Albies and, and Acuna. Um, and right now, the rotation's being bumped up by Mike Fultonavich and Brandon McCarthy and Sean Newcomb. So, you know, there's when I get asked about is this sustainable, I think the pitching is still the big question mark. And, you know, you look at that, you look at that, um, uh, that lineup the way it is now, and you can tell. Like which of these guys are gonna um, are gonna keep hitting, you know, at a 140 OPS plus for the rest of the year just by looking at them? Like I don't expect, I don't think anybody really expects Nick Markakis to keep hitting like Bryce Harper, you know. But the pitching is going to be what makes or breaks this team, not only this season but going forward. Yeah, and the National East, the National League East has already been such a carousel, and it turns out, you know, I said this a month ago when we talked about the Mets' hot start. I would have said it a couple weeks ago about the Phillies run, and I'll say it again now as we talk about the Braves. I still think Washington is going to win this division. They've Mm -hmm. crept back up. There's no longer really a big gap between them in first place, but it's going to be close throughout the season at Baseball Perspectives right now. The Nationals, Braves, Phillies, and Mets all project to bunch between 81 and 87 wins, and you can sort of see the beginning of maybe a transfer of power between the Nationals, who might lose Bryce Harper this year, and the Phillies and the Braves, who are on their way up. And like the Braves, after this season, they have two long-term contracts on their books. One is Freddie Freeman, and one is a way-too-cheap Ender and Ciarte. They can basically do whatever they want this winter, and they already have such a strong young core that the next couple of years in the NL East are going to be a really fun battle that division is no longer Washington and four teams to beat up on. It's fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the opposite now. It's Miami and four teams that Miami is going to push all over 500. One thing that makes me, and we'll um, uh, we'll wrap this up pretty soon, but one thing that makes me optimistic for Washington's sake is they've already taken Atlanta's best shot, Philadelphia's best shot, and New York's best shot, and they're a game and a half out of first place. 
and like, they're and they're the, not really healthy yet. And they're not really healthy, exactly. So I think this year is sort of a preview of what's going to happen next year. I mean, this all I think this mostly depends on what happens to Harper and how old um, or you know how much Max Scherzer ages because you know the Nats still have the two best players in the division, um, and but it's uncertain how long they'll either have those guys or how effective uh, Scherzer will be. So next year is going to be really interesting, but this year I would just you know, consider a preview and just, you know, judging by uh, what Albies and Acuna have done, what a preview. Right. And just to wrap that up, the National League as a whole right now is kind of a couple bad teams and teams that are beating up on them. There are only four teams below 500 in the National League right now. And one of them is the Dodgers, who even given all their problems, we don't necessarily expect to stay there. So it's going to be a really entertaining race throughout the summer whether it's for the three division titles, which will all be contested, or the two wild card spots, I think 12 teams could legitimately still be in the race in August or September. And that's an exciting thing. And the Braves have their exciting players to help propel them to that spot. Here we thought this year was going to be boring. Well, one thing that's never boring is Zach Cram's appearances on the Ringer MLB show. Thanks again for coming on, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thanks again to Zach Cram. We'll be right back with Paolo Ugetti after this commercial break. Want an unfair advantage to dominate your fantasy baseball league? Well, look no further and download SquadQL for free for your Apple and Android devices. SquadQL is the only mobile app you need to crush your friends and rivals this year. It recommends the best starting lineup each day based on your starters, bench players, and free agent pool. How does SquadQL actually do this? The app connects directly to your Yahoo, ESPN, and CBS leagues, pulling in your actual roster and your league scoring system. It also provides waiver wire recommendations, daily updates to player rankings, and much more. Head to the Apple app and Google Play stores to download SquadQL, your all-in-one fantasy baseball manager. SquadQL is brought to you by the creators of RotoQL, the leading daily fantasy lineup optimizer trusted by over 100,000 DFS players. You can also download RotoQL for free on both Apple and Android. When the Major League Baseball playoffs get down to crunch time, we talk about a lot about pitchers going on short rests. My next guest is a man who throughout the NBA playoffs is going on short rest, a man who's been blogging until his fingers are worked to the bone, but he is Joining us to talk about the Yankees and the Red Sox today, Paolo Ugetti. How you doing? How's it going? I'm honored to be here. First of all, I did not expect to be talking baseball with you before talking about the Sixers, but I assume at this point uh, you would prefer that. Yeah, I'm not... I, I don't think I'm talking about this. I'm, I don't think I'm going to talk about the Sixers or to Bill Simmons until uh, the end of the this NBA playoffs. I don't blame you. Like, I don't you know, blame you. Wake... You know, tell me, tell me when the draft is. Um, <laughs> so we want to talk about uh, baseball's marquee rivalry. Is you know, sick as as people are of this. You know, they're going to um, the Yankees and Red Sox are going to London next year. That was just announced, and and uh, Rob Manfred has um, talked about that today. Um, but they're also playing this week in New York, as is their custom. But before we do that, uh, when we were talking about this last night, you said that Yankees and the Red Sox, or Red Sox Yankees, was your introduction to baseball in America, and that pe- piqued my interest. So, you know, I and I've never heard this story. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's just 
what I grew, so I grew up in El Salvador, um, lived there for the first nine years of my life. Then uh, my family moved here to LA in 2004. And I remember it because we moved here in the middle, right in the middle of October. And I, one of the first few memories I remember of watching TV at like, it was at a friend's house or something like that. And they had the 2004 ALCS on. And I remember just being enthralled by obviously the entire series and then the comeback happened and all of that. And, you know, growing up in El Salvador, like I said, that was just an all soccer all the time kind of a place. And so I had never really gone into baseball. So literally first experience, it was right in the middle of October getting to see the ALCS. And it was just like, okay, this is really fun. And honestly, I don't know if I would have gone into baseball. Obviously, I do a lot of basketball now, but I don't know if I would have gone that interested in baseball had I not experience that series the way I did, which is which such a like a fresh and open mindedness about, you know, the game and, and getting that, you know, obviously one of the more historic comebacks in, in in the sport. Yeah. I I mean it's all been downhill from there, right? Yeah, pretty like, much. You, you, if you spent the past fifteen years just being slightly disappointed that baseball wasn't as good as it was the first time you saw it. Well that's the thing, like because it was so exciting the first moment I saw it it kind of made me fall in love with it in a weird way. And then everything aside, uh, everything from that wasn't as, maybe not as exciting, but the little bits that I, that I got here and there, like I remember the 2007 uh, against the Tigers when the Red Sox were playing the Tigers and Big Poppy had that home run. So I just became a pseudo Red Sox fan, if you will. Also, my uh, I visited Boston for a while when I was younger. Uh, so there was like a little bit of a connection there. So after that, it was just like, I like this game. I enjoy watching it. Obviously, in the playoffs now, I do it more so because it's just I'm tied up with so much basketball. But you know, I, I it was it was good. It was a perfect introduction. That's awesome. Um, I love you know stories of you know how people who didn't grow up like with a you know baseball in their in their crib how they got into the game. But uh, you know, let's fast forward to 2018. The Yankees come into this series red hot and. Yep. They've won 15 out of 16, I think, and it's not, they haven't been beating up on bad teams. You know, it's three against Minnesota, a sweep of the Angels in LA, three out of four against Houston in Houston, and now a a sweep of of Cleveland. You know, this is the Yankee team that I think everybody uh, made the American League's favorites before the season. You know, they're showing that after a nine and nine start. Yeah, I mean, I think. It was interesting to me that all the offseason, you know, hype was around the Yankees, and then the Red Sox kind of just got off on this huge run, and and they're still to some extent on this run. But this is kind of feels like a correction that that's happening in the sense of like this is actually like you said the team, the Yankees team, uh, we all expected to see, and it's finally kind of coming together. I mean, you have, I think I was looking at this, and it's it's their best start since 2002, and it's the Red Sox best start since 2003. So it's really Fun, I guess, in this from a rivalry sense, uh, that both teams are just peaking in this way, and um, you know it's been it's been fun to watch and fun to see. I'm sure we'll get into you know their their recent brawls and all of that, but I, I'm I, this is exactly how I would want it to be if I were either Yankees or Red Sox fan. Yeah, and one thing that, and we'll get to the Red Sox in a second, but one thing. Uh, one player who's really jumped off the field for me for the Yankees is Luis Severino because mm-hmm. there's it, the Yankees lineup is so good and we've talked about this on I think every single episode of the podcast but you know, 
the lineup is so good. The bullpen's so good. The pitching has a lot of question marks, and particularly with Jordan Montgomery going down. You know, Severino, he came into Houston last week and just shut the Astros down. Like it was, it, it, we've seen a lot of great pitching performances down here this year, and Severino's was up there. Um, you know, I think he's getting into the into a place where, and I don't know why there's this reluctance to sort of anoint him as a capital A ace, but mm-hmm. um, I, he is that for, you know, there's no doubt in my mind about that now. I mean, I think even watching him, you get that sense that he's as confident as he needs to be to be an ace. I, I, I really enjoyed watching him both in that game and just this uh, this year because he, he shows a lot of emotion. And I personally, I enjoy that out of a baseball player. So, you know, he's like hopping off the mound, slapping his glove. And, and obviously, if you look at his numbers, I mean, 2.1 ERA, 5-1 and one and all of that. And I, I don't know if you noticed this but or heard about this. I'm sure you did. You're far more in the know about this than I am. But there was a there was a little um, thing that A-Rod did on, uh, recently where he... Or where he um, said that Severino kind of met with Pedro Martinez in the offseason, and he kind of he received the tutorial on his changeup, and I think that and he was telling him like he needs to improve both his mechanics and the way he was shielding the ball, and so in in this video that, that I was watching, Arod shows how how differently he's lining up to pitch, and I think that's something that's clearly been been effective for him. Uh, so that I thought I found that really interesting, and, and if you if you just watch him, like he had a pitch, I think where it was like a, uh, it, he struck somebody out. He struck Alex Bregman out in that game where you, that you were talking about on an outside fastball that was 99 miles an hour, and then he struck out uh, another guy on an inside off speed pitch that completely fooled him and left him looking. So it's like he has he's kind of showing his whole repertoire, and it's been really fun to watch, and it it feels like that's the, what the Yankees are quote unquote missing, you know? Because like you said, we talk about their lineup and their explosive offense but really if they can get him to stay at this level the entire season then then you know their ceiling is just huge right he is that guy who you could throw up against chris sale or justin verlander or you know i guess the astros and and indians have a couple of those guys but you know new york has at least one and going over to the, the red sox side i don't know if we've given mookie Betts credit on this show for the hot start he's been on because he had you know, he was he had in 2016, he had a season that would have won him the AL MVP in pretty much every year that Mike Trout didn't have a classic Mike Trout season. Mm-hmm. Um, he's close to a 10 win player and he's hitting like that again. And, you know, you're getting the same same old quotes about, oh, you know, I haven't it, there's one that, that made the rounds a couple weeks ago. It was an anonymous scout said, I haven't seen Trout in person since 2011, but it's hard to believe that Mookie Betts isn't the best player in baseball. And, you know, he's playing like. If you make that adjustment um, where you just say Trout is just so good, like we sort of did with Michael Jordan or Barry Bonds or Wayne Gretzky, you know, mm-hmm. Betts would be right there for number two. Yeah, I mean, I was I find Betts pretty fascinating just because he's such an antithesis to if you pair him up if you put him up against like the Yankee sluggers who are big and tall and Betts is five nine. I think that's really interesting to me. And you know, he's leading the AL in average home runs, slugging. On base, on base plus slugging, he has twelve doubles. But I, I was actually wanting to ask you because this is something I've seen, you know, on Twitter and baseball media, whatever. That this this weird conversation happening between whether he is the best, he is the best player in baseball, or compared to Trout, or like where, what's the, who would you rather take right now, kind of thing. I think that I would still obviously lean Trout in that sense, but I'm curious to hear like what do you think he has to do? I guess the rest of the season. Or even just going forward to to even make that like an actual conversation. 
I mean, if he slugs 800 for the rest of the year, then he'll probably <laughs> win the MVP. Right. Um, I think that... I mean, you get this conversation in basketball all the time around LeBron, for instance. Like, right. one player is just so far at it, at ahead of the pack that you start looking for... You just get... Like, you get bored mm-hmm. of one player just dominating. So you start looking for ways to frame the question in which, you know, Trout or LeBron or whoever isn't uh, the obvious answer for the person you pick. And, you know, Betts, I think in terms of his skill set, his on-base, his speed, uh, defense, power, like he is as close to the Trout package uh, as you can get with that actually being Trout. But he's got that one great season under his belt and a bunch of really good like all-star and possibly even norm, you know, in, under normal, normal circumstances, MVP caliber seasons. And he's never quite hit that peak. Like, I don't know if it's he's going to need to add 10 home runs worth of power. I don't know what it is exactly or move to center field even. Um, but that's he's just a li- he does a lot of the same things well that Trout does, but he's Trout is just better at most of them. Sure, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of where I stand too. But I think you're right. It's kind of like the disease of comparison, which we just we're like as a sports media conglomerate, we're prone to do. Which so I guess that's where it all comes from. But I found it really interesting. Yeah, I I think I think it is just like we get bored. We need the comparison, and you'll notice it like. Trout is always a guy who who you compare the other person to, whether and but the other person changes. Whether you know one week right. it's Aaron Judge, one week it's Betts, one week it's Josh Donaldson or Bryce Harper. <laughs> um, but you brought up something interesting about Betts, and like we can, this is sort of silly, uh, but I do enjoy the physical contrast between this Yankees team and this Red Sox team because the Yankees. I go on about this all the time, but the Yankees are gigantic, mm-hmm. like. They're so big that Aaron Judge doesn't stand out in that locker room. Like, Dylan Batances looks just as big. Sabathia, Aroldis Chapman's huge. Gary Sanchez, who's about as wide as a city block, looks short right. in that locker room. And the Red Sox are all short guys. You know, Ben Attendee's short, Bradley's short, Betts is tiny, uh, Eduardo Nunez isn't that big. Even, like, the big pitchers on the Red Sox, you know, Kimbrell's short, but... Chris Sale and Rick Porcello are, are really tall, but they're skinny in in this kind of awkward way. Like there's a very much like that physical element also almost brings us back to like that pre-2004 world where the Yankees look like the bullies. Yeah. And the Red Sox have been so good and their fans have been so obnoxious over the past decade that we haven't really had that dynamic in a while. Yeah, no, I was actually gonna say that. Like not to take it full circle back to where we started, but I remember that, you know, and like you said, in the 2004 era or whatever, all that, uh, that time, that was, this is kind of playing to that, which is like the Yankees that are like these huge, you know, the the, the Bronx Bombers and all of that, and the, the Red Sox were these, uh, you know, upstart, scrappy guys, and, and, and it's, it's not, very Disney movie, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's, not, I don't think we can make the same comparison now, but it just from a, from an aesthetic standpoint and looking at the rosters, you do get that sense that, you know, the Red Sox are full of these smaller guys while the Yankees are just <laughs> ever-growing. Yeah. Well, this is having this back is fun, at yeah. least until, you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to get tired of it by the end of the season, but at least for now, like having, a, you know, high stakes in May, you know, Red Sox-Yankees series, it can get a little bit chippy. I think that, like, the Yankees are a little less buttoned up now than they used to be, and I think that that can get, uh, you know, Make sparks fly a little bit more than uh, than they have in the past few years. So, all right. Well, if this if this rivalry keeps uh, um, keeps driving the baseball discussion over the next season, or we'll uh, 
we'll have you back on to talk about it more. But until then, thanks for uh, for coming on. Yeah, of course. I'm I'm honored and I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Paolo Ugetti for coming on. We'll be right back with Ben Lindbergh after these messages. In 2002, the Oakland A's introduced advanced statistical methods into the world of baseball, forever changing the sport. In 2012, Upstart introduced advanced statistical methods into the world of lending, providing its borrowers a way to get rid of high-interest debt without the traditional underwriting process. Upstart offers personal loans that go beyond the traditional FICO score when assessing your creditworthiness and reward you based on your education and job history in the form of a smarter interest rate. Go online and check out your Upstart rate in just two minutes. Checking is free and will never affect your credit. Once your loan is approved, the funds will be transferred to you the very next business day. Then you can use the funds to pay off credit cards, consolidate debt, even make a large purchase. The choice is yours. Over 100,000 people have used Upstart. Now it's your turn. Hurry to upstart.com slash MLB show to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your credit only takes two minutes and won't affect your credit. That's upstart.com slash MLB show. Loans are offered by Cross River Bank, a New Jersey state chartered commercial bank. Restrictions apply. For details, visit upstart.com slash MLB show. My final guest today is a man who is doing what we in the publishing business call the full Serrano, attempting a second assault (laughs) on the New York Times bestseller list. The author of The Makeover Machine with Travis Sawchuk and Ringer staff writer and my good friend Ben Lindbergh. Thank you. My first assault didn't go quite as well as Chase, but I made it onto the list technically. So I, I hope that uh, I'll, I'll mount that summit a second time. We're all rooting for you. Um, Thank you. So in between writing books, you wrote about Clayton Kershaw and uh, you suggested in your in your article uh that we are past actually I'll quote right here the scary part. This is not entirely what the what the story's about, but though the future Hall of Famer remains a formidable pitcher, we're probably past Pete Kershaw. And mm-hmm. I find that proposition interesting because as you alluded to later uh in the story that uh as recently as like ten months ago, the idea that Clayton Kershaw wasn't the best pitcher in baseball was ludicrous like bordering on offensive like i wrote a really (laughs) huffy takedown of of max scherzer being the best pitcher in baseball Mm -hmm. in like june or july of last year and i found myself in the early parts of this season thinking like if i had one game to win scherzer would be the guy i'd want on the mound and not kershaw and that's new you know for the past six or seven years yeah, that's right. I don't know whether to adopt a somber tone here to suit the subject matter we're talking about. I don't want to oversell things. Clayton Kershaw has been a good pitcher this year, but I wrote that article even before the news broke that he was going on the DL with biceps tendonitis, which, you know, in one sense, I guess you could say it's positive in that you can pinpoint a reason perhaps for why he wasn't pitching quite as well. You could say, well, it's his arm. His arm was bothering him. On the other hand, never a good thing when a pitcher's arm is bothering him. And Clayton Kershaw really had never had an arm injury before this. I know he separated his shoulder shagging flies way back in 2009, but otherwise his arm had been intact even as other parts of his body had begun to break down. So, of course, he's had the back issues the last couple seasons, but arm is new territory and sort of scary territory. And of course, the Dodgers are saying the reassuring phrases, you know, no structural damage, that old chestnut. But we know from the past that that can be at times a precursor to a more serious injury. Often it's not. Let's hope it's not in this case, but it can be. 
So as I was writing that article, I mean, I was just noticing that, you know, his ERA is still superficially impressive, sub three, certainly, although not quite in the Kershaw territory we've become accustomed to lately. But the stuff has just slipped and it slipped a little last year and it slipped even more this year. And he just doesn't throw very hard anymore. He actually throws slower than the average left-handed starter, which, of course, is lower than the league average to begin with. And he's really just gone away from the fastball and become kind of an off-speed pitcher lately, which tells me that he doesn't really trust his fastball anymore. So that's somewhat concerning, I think. And you're right, I, I linked to that piece that you wrote last spring when it was just assumed really, at least by us, that Kershaw was the best pitcher in baseball. And I noted now, you know, 538 has these pitcher ratings that are basically based on just how good a pitcher's been and how good his opponents have been. And Clayton Kershaw had the top spot. It's like the seeding in tennis, sort of. You're just the reigning number mm-hmm. one. Kershaw had that for years. He finally fell out of that top spot. I think he seeded it to Scherzer and possibly Sale last summer for the first time. Now on that list, he's down at eighth. And the list of guys ahead of him, Verlander, Kluber, Scherzer, Strasburg, Sale, Carrasco, Severino, you can quibble about whether all of those guys should be ahead of Kershaw, but it seems almost certain that some of those guys should be. And that's sort of sad. Yeah, it, the interesting thing is is that uh, the 538 ranking sort of jibes with with my gut feeling on this, which is that mm-hmm. Kershaw is now like it used to be that there was there was no question, but now he's just sort of one of many excellent pitchers. You know, he is one right. of the top five pitchers in baseball, and that he slipped in like there are qualities like you know there there is this is an annoying part of like any conversation around number one starters. Um, but there is something ineffable about this, you know, and I don't know that Kershaw, you know, gives, gives you that quality that maybe Kluber and, uh, uh, and Scherzer, maybe even Verlander again, uh, give Mm -hmm. you now. Yeah, no, it's true. And, And I think we got sort of spoiled for a while because Kershaw was the best pitcher in baseball for a long time. And it sounds strange even to use the past tense there. But he kept getting better year after year. So it's sort of the the Mike Trout thing where he's been the best, the acknowledged best for years, but every year seemingly he gets better in some way and then we marvel at him anew. And that's kind of the case with Kershaw. He was great and then he just reached this even higher level and was just otherworldly for a few years there. And so now we seem to be on the other side of that and I don't love to talk about that. I don't relish that fact. He is now 30 and of course you expect pitchers at that age to lose a little fastball speed and to lose some stuff. And we knew inevitably he would slip out of that top spot. You just didn't know whether he'd be replaced by some new generation of pitchers or in this case, someone like Justin Verlander, who, of course, is a lot older than Kershaw and went through his own period of fastball slippage. And if you want to look on the bright side and be an optimist with Kershaw, you could point to Verlander and say, well, he went through something similar. He was past 30. He lost some fastball speed. In his case, there was a core injury and a tricep strain, and you could kind of link that with the velocity loss. And he got that speed back, and he became a dominant pitcher again. So it's not out of the question that Kershaw could do that. 
But Verlander's really an outlier in that respect. I was Usually gonna say, when you, you mentioned your next yeah. sentence included the words Felix Hernandez. So. Yes, exactly. That that's probably the more typical progression. And you know, Felix's drop off has been steep, but it's really rare for someone to lose a significant amount of fastball speed at that age that Verlander did, and then gain it all back again and get back to that peak. It's much more common once you lose that speed, it's gone for good. And Kershaw can still be very effective, I think, because he had so many great pitches before. I mean, at his peak, he had, if not the best, then one of the very best fastballs, sliders, and curveballs in baseball. He basically had the three best pitches in baseball, more or less. And so if you take one of those away, he can still be really good, but you take one of the best pitches away from the best pitcher, and he's just no longer going to be the the greatest. So now he's relying more on the curve and especially on the slider, which he's throwing much more often. And I think there are ways he can compensate. He could get a little less predictable with his pitch miss, pitch mix. He used to be very fastball heavy, especially when he was behind in the count. And, you know, he could experiment with other pitches. He's tried to pick up a changeup in the past. There's been some discussion about whether he could start throwing a cutter and kind of have that CC Sabathia style renaissance. So something like that could happen. But you kind of worry just because of the slipping stuff and the back issues, which with many players just never really go away. Yeah. And that's, it's the back issues. And now with the the biceps injury, we're now two years removed from Kershaw's last 200 inning season. And I think a lot of this, like a lot of him looking mortal is not, you know, like we've said, it's, he's still pitching like one of the best pitchers in baseball this year, but, uh, his ability to stay on the field, make 30 starts. You know, he's been the guy who's gone on short rest more than anybody else in baseball in the playoffs over the past three or four years. So, mm-hmm. you know, there there is that that shine coming off him. One thing that's, you know, you talked about those adjustments, and I'm curious about two things about that. One is, you know, how does, if he loses a little bit off the fastball, if he had the the best fastball and now is sort of an average to below average fastball. What does that do? Like how much does, how much is his having the best curveball or third best curveball in baseball relying on his fastball? How do those things interact? Mm-hmm. And the other thing is how, like this is, this is an, an adjustment that we see pitchers make all the time. And some yeah. guys, you know, you talked about they hit 30 and, and all of a sudden aren't throwing it as hard. And, you know, a lot of them bring up a second pitch. Um, you know, Cole Hamels, when, you know, to use another lefty who adjusted his pitch mix throughout his career, like he added a cutter, he started throwing his curveball more. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if Kershaw has just been so dominant that he hasn't needed to really change his game a whole lot. Like he yeah. he's like Felix in this extent where it feels like he's just been 24 for the past 12 years. Right. Yeah. And, you know, this is something that people said about Felix also, that he would age well because he had so many pitches. And that really hasn't proven to be the case, unfortunately. And so you'd think it should be the case with Kershaw. And and we've talked on recent episodes of this podcast about how the league as a whole and certain pitchers particularly are going away from the fastball and relying more on off-speed pitches. And if you're someone like Patrick Corbin, who never really had a good fastball to begin with, then it really benefits you to throw something else more. In Kershaw's case, he had a fantastic fastball. So you take that away. I don't know whether you can be quite the same guy. And when I wrote this article last week about Kershaw, 
his fastball had just been completely crushed. And on the leaderboards of like performance against fastballs, he was sandwiched between Brian Mitchell and Matt Harvey, two guys who are no longer it's starting great. pitchers. <laughs> that's yeah. not good company to be keeping. So I think that's a problem. I mean, there are ways in which Kershaw has been predictable in the past. Like there were certain counts where he just would never throw a curveball, for instance. And if you were a hitter, you could just kind of cross that pitch off your mind, essentially. So maybe he becomes less predictable now and he starts mixing those pitches more and maybe that helps. Maybe that kind of compensates. I I think he could go through that kind of transformation and he hasn't really adjusted the speed of his other pitches. You know, maybe his fastball has slipped in speed, but he's still throwing the slider and the curve more or less as, as fast or as slow as he did before. So maybe he can take a little bit off those pitches too and maintain that velocity separation. Maybe that sort of helps, but it's tough. I mean, I think both the slider and the curve have been good pitches for him this year, while the fastball has not. And I think he could survive and maybe even thrive with what he has or picking up an additional pitch. I just don't think he can stay at the level that he used to be at if he no longer has that fastball. And obviously this has implications for him, for the Dodgers for this season. They've been hit by injury after injury and they can ill afford that sort of thing right now. But one of the most fascinating aspects of this to me is the opt-out clause in Kershaw's mm-hmm. contract at the end of the season, which I think we all assumed he would be exercising. He's got two years and $65 million left on his deal. He can opt out and become a free agent at the end of the season. And if he were effective, healthy Kershaw, that would be a no-brainer. He'd get many more years tacked on to the end of it. He could either become a full free agent or work out an extension with the Dodgers. And now that is sort of in jeopardy because if his stuff doesn't recover or if he has injuries the rest of the year, I mean, if the back problems recur, if the biceps issue turns out to be more serious than it looks right now, I don't know that it would be beneficial for him to test the market this year. So it's possible that he will do what Masahiro Tanaka did and decide not to opt out and maybe wait for a better time. Yeah, that's an interesting because you're right. I had just like what I had assumed actually was he would opt out and just ring the Dodgers for another four years on the back end at, you know, 30 odd million dollars. But, you know, you look at the I don't know that the downside is that great because you know, Jake Arrieta's guarantee was uh, was three years, seventy five million uh, with mm-hmm. the Phillies, and you know, was Kershaw two and sixty five? Like, I don't know how bad he'd have to be to be like dis- you know, for the trend to discourage you the way it did with Arietta. And you know, yeah. Arietta was in this, and I mean, the other thing is we have no idea what the free agent market's going to look like, right? Because on one hand, you could see a team with extra cash, like. You know, there are six teams probably that want and could afford one of Harper and Machado, and there's only one Harper and one Machado and one Josh Donaldson. So that could leave somebody with extra cash and a you know a GM with a need to to save face who could drive up a bidding war. But at the same mm-hmm. time, maybe you know ownership is just realized they can wait players out. So right. th- I mean, this the injury is is one of the injury and the loss of fastball velocity are really two of I don't know nine or 10 different variables that you'd have to play with. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I would bet on Clayton Kershaw just as a person and as a personality in that he's incredibly dedicated to his craft and has this fanatical work ethic. I guess on one hand, if he were just kind of out of shape and coasting by in his talent all these years, you could say, well, now he can get himself in shape and he'll compensate for his loss of stuff in that way. 
I don't think he can do that because he's probably already maxed out his abilities. He's just such a hard worker and so intense. But yeah, I think every time you know, I've been in the Dodgers clubhouse, he's been sweaty. Like, <laughs> right, like he's exactly. just been on the treadmill yeah. or lifting. Yeah. So I don't know if he can work any harder than he already has, but I do expect that he will keep himself in shape and just physically age as gracefully as he can. Unfortunately, his body has seemed to betray him here, but he definitely thinks about pitching a lot and cares about pitching a lot and will not stop until he finds some solution to this. I I believe that. So I think his makeup would make you maybe more optimistic about him than you might be about the typical pitcher. But still, it's just really hard to escape this trajectory. And he has one of my favorite active streaks in baseball, which I've written. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah. The, the nine consecutive seasons of decreasing his career ERA. Of course, his rookie year, he had a, a four point something ERA. And every season since then, he has lowered his career ERA, which has gotten really hard to do the last couple of years just because he's been so great for so long. And it looks almost certain that that streak will be snapped now just because he has to have his ERA in the low twos essentially to do it again. And I just don't know whether the health and the stuff will cooperate. Yeah. There are two things that that do make me optimistic about Kershaw going forward. One of them is that there are a couple like obvious adjustments that he could make. You know, Mm -hmm. he doesn't even need to you know, if if you can figure these things out, then, you know, there is a there is a solution to to this, or yeah. at least an adjustment that he can make to slow the decline. The other thing is he's always had great command of all his pitches. And if you yes. can locate, yeah. then, you know, it doesn't matter if you're throwing ninety four or ninety one. So mm-hmm. you know, and you know, we're ringing funeral bells over here and <laughs> you know, like like you said off the top, he's got a two eighty six ERA and right. you know, he's been one of the best players on the on the Dodgers this year. So it, all of this is relative. I just don't know that, like, I for the first time since he won his last Cy Young Award, I don't know that I would bet on him winning another. And I think right. that illustrates just, if nothing else, the high standard that we hold Kershaw to. Yeah, he's really the least of the Dodgers' problems right now. They have many other problems and more pressing problems. And you're right about the command. I think his command has been pretty good this year, too, aside from that weird one where he walked six Marlins, which no one should ever do. But he just has been prone to home runs over the last year plus. And he just, when he does make a mistake, doesn't really have the speed to get it past people anymore. And obviously that has plagued him in the postseason to some extent. And that's partly a product, I think, of how he's been used in those games, but also is a product of the stuff. So yeah, I don't want to rule him out. Obviously, he is still a great pitcher and I hope he will be for many years, but We've just enjoyed geeking out about Clayton Kershaw's unparalleled excellence for years now, and it's unfamiliar and somewhat disturbing to be talking about him on the downslope instead of just this perpetual upslope. Yeah. All right. Well, next week we'll we'll find something a little sunnier <laughs> to talk about, I guess. Yes, but until then, that. thanks as always for, for coming on. Talk to you then. That'll do it for this week's Ringer MLB show. Thanks again to Zach Cram, Paolo Escoblog, Paolo Ugetti, and best-selling author Ben Lindbergh for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you to Ozzy Albies, Ronald Acuna, Luis Severino, Mookie Betts, and Clayton Kershaw for providing fodder for conversation this week. Thank you to producers Evan Campbell and Jim Cunningham for stitching it all together. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time.